You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice, a part of the Capital Broadcasting Podcast Network in partnership with ReCity and Coastal Credit Union. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person. And that starts with our personal Personal check-in. Let's do it. I was just going to say, I I really don't feel like kind of a warm up is necessary today. I think that the fact that we're doing this as like a special recording, I don't think we need to try to even pretend or even lighten the moment at all. Well, I mean, the check-in is just the whole thing is a check-in. The whole thing. The whole thing is like, hey, we need to check in with each other to see like, how are we doing and kind of catch up our audience to what we were processing in our last episode, but weren't ready to speak on yet. All right. Well, Jess, we we kind of did a fake out a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if either of us necessarily envisioned what the next 30 days would have looked like since our final episode of season one or would have wanted to. Honestly, it's like a nightmare that you feel like you can't wake up from. It just keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we wanted to do a special edition, but I think just based on what we've been working on for the last several months and the conversations that we've had with, with each other and with listeners and with our guests, it's, we need to do this, right? We need to have a, take a moment and just address what's happening. And I know our listeners are used to us doing like this sort of format where we do check-in and then we have topic. And I don't know that we necessarily, I mean, for people who listen to this in three years, they're going to be like, what are they talking about? But if you follow it in sequence, this, this moment in time is going to live, it will outlive us all. I'm hopeful. Mm. And you'll be able to sort of register what's happening now for years and years to come. So normally we do a check-in, but, or we do a check-in and then a topic. But I think the topic right now is sort of this civil unrest that we find ourselves in at the other end of a murder that took place just a few weeks ago with George Floyd being murdered in Minneapolis for all of the world to see and painfully watch for nearly nine minutes. And, you know, race is a trigger. And injustice now has become a trigger. And so here we are. And so for those of us who are in the moment, we all know that in many parts of our country, parts of our country are burning (laughs) in real life. Parts of our country are asking, I don't understand what the problem is. What's the big deal? And life is going on. And the biggest problem is the global pandemic, right? So there's a lot really to cover and to discuss, but I think for me, when, when we talked about doing this episode, what was most important for me was just checking in on my friend. We get asked to do conversations a lot on these, on topics like this or to be a guide and support and resource. And so just as a friend who's, you know, husband and you have family and you have to have conversations with colleagues and friends, just see how you're doing and then talk about sort of how this is all shaken out for us in the last few weeks personally. Yeah. yeah. So how are you? I think that's a good way to frame the conversation. It's why are we here? We're here for the same reason that we started this podcast, right? Right. And it feels painfully more relevant than ever, the reasons why we've been having these conversations. And so it just felt like in talking to you offline, we 
the last 30 days since we finished our last episode, we thought we were done for the summer, knowing that, you know, we're still going to be having these conversations, but we needed to kind of hit a level reset before we gear up for the fall. Like we couldn't, we couldn't leave it there. Not, not when our country is where it is, not when our communities are where they are. And that really the spirit of this whole thing is almost to let people into a friendship, right. That talks honestly and openly. It's almost like you're at a kitchen table with us. You're at a living room on a sofa with us talking how we would talk to each other, honestly, openly, vulnerably to learn from each other, because we believe so strongly that that is part of how, how we heal, how we fix this. It's not the only thing, but it's part of it. And yeah, we have to humanize these things if we're going to see change happen. So yeah, you, you asked me how I'm doing. I guess I just got to get to that answer now. (laughs) I'm struggling, Jess. Like if I'm, I mean, I'm, if I'm being real honest, it's, it's been one of the hardest months of my life since we last recorded. And I've been on this journey for a while now, but something feels different about this current moment. Something feels different in my heart, my soul. It feels heavier than ever before. And I've been trying to do that inner work of like asking, why does it feel different? Because, you know, you and I, we've been talking about injustice for a long time, even before this podcast, right? We, We didn't start last fall. We've been talking about this and we've been on this journey together for a while, for years. and this just feels especially heavy. And I think we know there's practical reasons of like COVID and just already this, our own mental health is being attacked by the quarantine. And so I think in many ways, we're seeing this current moment be expounded. Like I I feel it because I was struggling before this all stuff happened just to make it, you know, but then I I think I'm sensing like in my friendships, especially with my friends of color, specifically my black friends, the trauma. I am picking up on the trauma that they are experiencing in this moment. And it's like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like, it's almost like secondary trauma. And I don't say that to say that like, I, I get it. I don't get it. But like these conversations, I'm feeling it in a way that I've never felt before. Cause I think I'm like, I'm just wading more deeply into these waters and it's crushing. It's crushing for me. And I'm like, Oh wait, I'm just learning what it means to drink from this cup. How in the world do my friends of color do this? How do they function on a daily basis when I'm struggling and I feel spent after a single conversation and yet I can still go and like live in a world that is set up for me and not have to carry this weight if I don't want to, you know, how I'm just like, I'm just, yeah, I'm just put on my back and I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand the how, and it's, it's hard to heartbreaking. Like we talk about that word resilient that my friends of color, that you and the friends of color I know have to be resilient, are put in a place where like, that's not an option. Like you're just forced into being resilient because so much is set against you. It's, it's just messing me up. It's messing me up and I don't have clear answers and I, there's no looking away. And it's just really, really troubling to my spirit in a way that I've never felt it this acutely before. And I, I don't think that's bad. I actually think that's good. And I think I need to lean further into that, not away from it. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's right. I mean, a lot of my white friends are feeling that same way and are saying it feels very uncomfortable right now. They're feeling this, this tension around that saying something is wrong, not saying something is wrong. Like all that whole tap dance, you know, we've talked about that before on our show about feeling reticent about stepping into the conversation because it always feels like maybe they're, I'm not saying it the right way and that we always encourage people to just 
say it, you know, just get in there with an understanding of not to place an undue burden on whoever it is you're saying it to, but like with thoughtfulness and building a relationship over time, have a conversation, but the conversations are good. In fact, you need to have more of those. But I think right now it is sort of a limbo for my white friends because there's two things happening here. I remember like it was yesterday. I know exactly what room I was in. I remember my son walking in the door at nine years old. I had the news on and he wanted to talk to me about Trayvon Martin. Like he asked me to talk about Trayvon Martin. And it was the first time that we had a case study, okay, where I had to sit with my nine-year-old and walk him through a media frenzy around a young person that looked like him, that looked like, looked like him, like looked like age-wise was close in age and all of that. And having to understand that and talk to him about it. And it was the first time that I ever saw my son get angry about race, not sad. He wasn't confused. He was pissed. Mm -hmm. He was so mad at nine. And I think it was based in fear and confusion. And for the first time, it wasn't in a book or whatever. It wasn't like these, these notions of, of warnings, right? It was like, no, this young man was unarmed, had candy and was killed because he was a threat to someone else because of what he looked like. And so I'm going somewhere with this. So that was, my son is 18 today. It's his 18th birthday today. So that was nine years ago. And so here, here we see George Floyd get murdered in nine minutes. And my white friends are kind of living like where Trey was, like in this sort of like kind of land of, one-offs and not, not applicable to me. Right. Mm. And then in nine minutes, my white friends checked all the way in, in many ways to like what my black friends and family, we live every day in the sense of like, we understand this has been going on for hundreds of years. So George Floyd for us was mourning. We were Mm. like mourning it while our white friends were like shock and awe and wanting to understand it. Can you believe this? Yeah. Can you believe this? Or I have, I can't believe who would ever, and why would this, these sort of like shock and awe moments. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and while, meanwhile, the black community is mourning because it is, it was so atrocious and horrific to watch. Trevor Noah did a really lovely piece right after this. And I hope people were able to watch this around the broken contract, Mm -hmm. trying to understand like why people were so, so like incensed and angry and why police units were burning and, you know, cars were on fire and cities were popping up everywhere and, and even overseas. Right. And he, he made it, he just said it so beautifully. At least for me, it made so much, just, it was an easy illustration is that we have a contract with one, like a human contract with one another, that if I'm in trouble the taxpayer dollars go to a service organization to come and help help me, EMS, fire department, police. Their job is to protect and serve me. And that's a contract that we have. And if I feel unsafe, I feel like I should be able to lean on those folks to help me. And in those nine minutes, it was like the contract was torn up. It was ripped in pieces. It was burned. And his life didn't matter. That contract wasn't, wasn't for him. And it didn't matter in that moment, that arrangement was null and void. And we all watched. And so 
when I saw it, I thought, is that contract broken for my son too? Hmm. How do I know for sure? How do I know for sure? You know, I'm sending my kid to Atlanta, which in, in this very moment is dealing with another horrific, you know, a, an unarmed black man was killed last week, Richard Brooks. And so now, you know, you've got the police chief resigning and, and you've got all this stuff going on within the city, just trying to make sense of it and also trying to protest that our lives do matter and that there's real value and that for much of this country was built on our backs. And yet we can't, we, we get shot in the back, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, how does it work? You know, where, where is the, and people want us to, you know, they're worrying about people looting and all these things. And I get that, but you have to understand that that comes from that broken contract that it's like, well, you don't care about my black body. I don't really care about your department store. It's not make it right, but it also isn't right to kneel on somebody's neck for nine minutes while they're screaming for their mother their dead mother, praying for intercession. That's not right either. So I think that's how I am. Mm. (laughs) I'm still sorting it out and I'm, you know, I'm still sorting it out. I think what you're naming there is so important in this conversation is the the difference between your reaction and I won't won't say yours and mine, because I think that we, we don't need to put the pressure on us to speak for all black and white people in these conversations. But I would say in general, when I talk to my friends of color, the reaction is, yeah, I'm not surprised to your point. There's no shock there. They immediately jump to that could be me. Right. And that's the one place that white people never go. Right. They're shocked. So they have the opposite experience. They are shocked because they're still surprised because that is not their lived experience ever. It's so contrary, not affirming. So your, your lived experience gets affirmed when you see that because that's all you know. So you go to that could be me or that could be my son. I watch a video like that. White people I talk to watch it and they're processing on an intellectual level the, oh, that's so different than my experience. And they never go to fear of that could be me next. Right, right, Ever. Right. So they don't, they don't live in that, that uncertainty. Like when Ahmaud Arbery was killed right around the time we were recording our last episode or he was killed way before that, but everything was really coming to light then with the video. The difference between the fear black people had in going for a run the next day or the choice they had to make to overcome to run. The dads I'm talking to, they're sitting and having to have a conversation about to their sons why they're going to go run because their sons are fearing for their life versus I just, I just went and ran. Like, yeah, there is no fear there for me, even though I see that because I know that I'm not going to get looked twice at when mm-hmm. I'm running around my neighborhood. There's no one, there's no one that's going to look sideways at me. I'm never going to be there. There's no neighborhood I could go to where that is going to be something where my safety is going to be at risk for going on a job. Yeah. Well, I think that's the psychological warfare you're talking about. It's that trauma that you bring yes. up. People, Why are black folks? I don't get this trauma. That that is, that is the trauma is that psychologically we are constantly trying to, to come back to balance. I, like going on a run. I haven't asked my son this because he does run is he's training for football. I haven't asked him because I don't want him to have to, process this with him if he doesn't want to process it with me. But like, is he worrying about it? Is he thinking about it? Is he trying to listen to his music while Mm. running past somebody or wondering what they're thinking of him? That psychological warfare that has been placed on us since we've been brought over here for slavery is a real thing. I mean, that's a, that's a real 
ongoing drumbeat that doesn't go away. And we have created tools and language to support each other through that. Whereas like there's a whole like lexicon around it, right? Everybody talks about the talk and all that stuff. I mean, it's way more than that. It's way more than that. It's it's the unspoken, right? It's the head nods. It's the, I got you. I see you. It's the, mm-hmm. all those things that that's not just, that is deeply cultural. And it is around this sort of traumatic experience that continues to be proven out. It mm-hmm. continues to be proven out as, as recently as 48 hours ago, right? I mean, nationally, yeah. you know, it happens every day, but where it gets the public attention. And so I think folks just need to recognize that it is a unique experience, period, point blank. And we, we are, we are people that, that have, are of two minds in many ways, you know, trying to survive and then also trying to survive, like trying to economically make our way and, and live our quote unquote American dream, whatever that is. I don't even think people buy it, buy it anymore. I mean, that's how I'm, I'm dealing with it. Right. I used to be so much on the community investment side where whatever board service volunteering, I'm still doing that to some degree, but it's really limited now. Like after this, my entire sensibility around my role in the resistance is different than it was three weeks ago. I bet you people are also trying to think that through in a new way. Where's my role? I think if you're listening to us talk right now, Jess, everyone is asking themselves that question, or at least our listeners. Not everyone's asking that, unfortunately, across the board. But I think the people who are tuning in based on how we title these, I mean, you know, I mean, we're, we're 15 episodes in at this point. You know the kind of conversations you're, we're going to have here are going to be action-oriented, you know, taking a step, show-up moment, movement, not just talk, but action. And so I want to press in there to your point of like, I want to know where do we go from here? Where are you going from here? And then let's process how each of us are taking steps forward so we can kind of help our listeners think about what that looks like in their own context. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've been really trying to determine, I, you know, I even did a list, like what are all the things that I'm involved in, you know, including this podcast, like what, where's my time being spent? And then what could make the most impact based on my circle of influence resources that I currently have and my gifts and talents. I'm just sort of doing an own my own personal assessment. Yeah. Just as asset mapping, right? <laughs> and feeling like, because I've been out in the streets protesting. I've, I mean, I've been doing yeah. Durham. We're in Durham, North Carolina. This is what, this is like, we know how to do this. And so over the last several years, when this has come up over the years, and Trey's been with me on occasion, and yet we're here, I find myself again. And so this time I am deeply focused on economics. Now, Economics doesn't change our structures. It doesn't change systems. That's different work, really. But there is a piece of this that I'm like really deeply interested in, which is being part of the resistance movement for me is going to be my individual success and collective economic empowerment that I can give back and invest into my community. And so what does that mean? Well, I have two businesses, two companies. One I'm a co-founder in, one I'm a solo entrepreneur. And I will not let white supremacy tell me that I am not able, capable, resourced to be highly successful, make a lot of wealth build in my own Mm. 
space. Mm. That's not happening. I am going to build wealth for me, my family, and my community. And economics really is the basis of everything, right? I mean, the economic base. I was talking to several of my friends about this, where it really starts with economics. When they, and I say they, I mean white power structures, look at the whole picture. They're like, you know, Black people in general and aggregate don't have a whole lot of wealth. I mean, and wealth is power. So Mm. that was designed, by the way. It's not because we can't create wealth. Over time, we're incredibly self-sufficient. Black Wall Street and Durham is a great example of that, where we turned out millionaires at the turn of the century, right after the Civil War ended. That doesn't happen by accident, right? We're capable of that. But then just when Black communities start to tip their hat and they start to make those moves and they start to build wealth on their own accord and their own talents and have that self-sufficiency that so often had been stripped from them and they show those signs of success, Rosewood being another example, um, Tulsa, Black Wall Street, okay. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden that's threatening and so that goes away. Mm. And so I'm like, you know what? Not, not today, not on my watch, and not as long as I have breath in me will I not strive to be my very best, excellent self and create wealth, like I said, for me, my family, and my community. Because our economic base equals power. And mm. when you have power, we won't be the ones that are... Think about... I, let's just be clear. Kimberly Jones. First of all, that's a resource. Go look up Kimberly Jones, who's a, she does young adult literature and she's a film director. She said it best. I mean, she's like the anthem for me when it comes to Black Lives Matter in this movement right now. She talked about the Monopoly game. Mm. And she just basically, we talked about that in episode two and she yep. killed the game. She brought that Monopoly game back to life, right? And really talked about these structures that after 400 years of building wealth for white people, and then trying to build it on our own when we had the quote unquote rights to do it. As mm. soon as that power shifted, the, all of this was gone, right? White folks can't stand the power structures to shift. Mm. And I'm saying, and she said it well, you know, you don't see, and this is going to be controversial, but I loved it that she said it because she's right. You don't see police kneeling on Jewish people's necks, right? You don't see them doing this to their own, to other white folks. Mm. And much of that has to do with wealth, economy, and power. Because if we have that, if we had that power, actually, she didn't say that. Uh, Another person said that, so don't attribute that to to her. But if we have that, people will think twice about killing Black folks if there are repercussions, if we have Mm. a power base, Mm. an economic power base. And so I'm working on that for myself and with some other members of my community, just having enough money and enough cash and enough capital that people can't ignore us. Hmm. We can then have demands, right? We can then have a seat at that weird proverbial table that counts and isn't because we're black and it's hmm. a DNI quota, hmm. but that that influence matters, right? And again, that's my approach to this. It's not the only approach. Policy change, protesting, Those things do matter. Systems change, community involvement, that all changes. But when I looked at my asset mapping and said, what are you about and what can you do right now? For me, it's to be focusing on changing our economic base because Mm. economics equals power and that power structure is key. Mm. Man, so much of what you said I'm I'm resonating with and I feel like it's right on the money. I mean, and you said it earlier. I mean, I, I think that you, I might push back to, to change or suggest that when you say that economics isn't systems change, 
I mean, Jess, when you look back, what is the conversation we're talking about? The system of race was an economic play. Yeah. Right? The only way I'm going to build my, my wealth is in the current system, I guess, is my yeah, point. Yeah, I okay. still do it within the existing system. Gotcha. I can't wait for the systems to change to build my wealth. I have to figure out how to there, do this. Okay, yeah. That's, I think that's an important distinction that of like, but you. not to say that what you're doing isn't promoting systemic change from within. Right. Because there, there's no there's multiple approaches. There's burn it all down, burn it all down. And you know, we're seeing that with the conversations around what do you do with police departments right now? And you have people who say reform. And there are people who say light a match and let's just start over. And I think that what I want to make sure for our listeners that they hear from what you're saying, though, is that to me, you have to take this back. You have to boil this down to economics because you have to ask yourself, why was race created in the first place? Right. Because if you know, if you do your homework and you realize that it was created as a social construct, then you have to ask what was the motivation to construct it in the first place? Yeah. And the motivation was economics. The motivation was greed and power. Yeah. Money and power. That was why. Yeah. That was why you subjugate and you oppress one group is because there's more economically to be gained if I pay you nothing for your labor so I can have more. Yeah. And I dehumanize you to justify it right? I think that that's the conversation that this has to go there. It can't just be, we have to be more proximate to each other, although we do, right? It has to be the conversation that I think we're most resistant to having, which is this has an economics, money and power were the reason this whole thing got started. They're going to have to be attacked at the root in order for this to be solved. There is no end around to economics and and greed attacking greed right and the power imbalance yeah if you're going to see real healing and that's where i think you might lose a lot of white people if i'm honest i mean let's just let's be real talk right like that's where people are like oh yeah i really like this this is this is good change is happening oh wait what like think about even durham's own history jess like i learned this even recently henry mccoy professor at nccu was giving a talk recently talking about that whole self-sufficiency being threatening I was learning about NC Mutual at one point in time was the tallest building in Durham, right? Black owned. It was burnt down because it was threatening to the white community. White people found that threatening symbolically. Well, because guess what? Bank is one floor shorter that's it. than the white bank across the street because obviously you can't be equal or that's greater. That's right. That, that is so significant right there. Like that symbol of, hey, we're going to build this building, but we're going to make sure this time we build it one story shorter than the white building. Yeah. Because we know what'll happen. We know what happened in Durham with 147. We know what happened in Tulsa. Black self-sufficiency has to stop being threatening. The reason it's threatening is because it's threatening to power. That's right. It's threatening to money and power concentrated in white hands disproportionately. Yeah. And until we start to tackle that route, all this other stuff is on the surface. You think about it in terms of like a cancer diagnosis. You can't, diagnosing cancer to the root cause is really important. Like you can't just treat the symptoms. You have to diagnose, you have to talk to a doctor and say, oh, we see what's actually killing you. And we're going to, but then you don't just stop at a diagnosis. People don't walk out of an office with a diagnosis and say, okay, yeah, job's done. Like the diagnosis is the beginning of a journey. So diagnosing it correctly and then being willing to actually do the work to pull those things up by the root and eradicate those things so that something new can grow there. That's the work that's before us. And I'd like to say, I'm just thinking about what everything that you're sharing 
the work, right, that's before us. I think additionally, and what doesn't get enough focus is we talk, and I think we all agree, we may not agree, but we all will nod our head in agreement that race is a social construct, right? It was made up for power structures. Black folks were brought over here as property to help the economic engine of this country for free labor and considered property. Okay. So race is a social construct to the advantage of certain people groups. If that's true, and we all sort of nod in agreement, oftentimes it's it's like the lens shifts to Black folks. Like, so Black isn't, that's a social construct. But if that is true, then so is whiteness. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yes. I, I want to yes. sort of focus on that just a little bit for listeners that while this all feels like, oh, Black folks and Black people and the oppression of Black people, I would say there's a little neurosis going on in our country with white people. Mm. Like, Y'all are, if we're going to admit that black is a social race in this case is a social construct. If, if black isn't real, then neither is white. Mm. And so what do you feel? How do you feel? Toni Morrison puts this forward and the documentary, the pieces I am, I think it was called the pieces I am. And she just, you know, she kind of like floats over it, but it's stuck with me. Ooh, it's stuck with me. Cause I'm like, all oh, this attention is on the black community. And I'm, when is the white community going to look at themselves and say, how do I feel if I'm not tied to my white identity, mm. my race, my social construct? How does that feel? How do you feel? Do you feel powerless? Does it feel uncomfortable? Because what it does is it strips you from your hierarchy. It strips you from your power position. And it says that, Rob, you and I are actually equal. We're yes. really the yes. same. And how does that feel? And I just would leave it there because I think that's work that white people need to do. Mm. They need to do that work on their own and not involve me because I got my own stuff over here. But stop worrying so much about, about me and worry about yourself. That's right. That's right. That will help me. I would rather learn about how blackness works than wrestle with the uncomfortable truth of how whiteness works. Yeah. Thank you. 10 times out of 10. And I think that our white listeners, if they're honest with themselves, would agree. Even if they're seeing themselves as a proponent of, hey, I'm all about justice. I think you're laying out a path to say, if you're white and you consider yourself to try to be allied in this work, there is no way for us to get justice for the black community in this country without you examining your own whiteness and your own complicity in this. It has to shift. That shift has to happen that you're pointing out, Jess. It has to. And I think everything you're saying, I'm tracking with you. And I think, I hope our listeners press rewind and go listen to it again. Because honestly, Jess, some of that stuff, if not most of it, doesn't, shouldn't involve you. Yeah. It is white people have to learn. They have to learn first history because we don't. Whiteness goes silent. We don't talk about, we don't say whiteness. <laughs> we don't say it as a phrase. We don't know how our own history that is what some of what we have lost in this mm-hmm. because we've lost too. Like we have chosen to make a trade for we've taken on this toxicity and we've made trades in all this in our grasping for power and for wealth. But like we've got to know history and we also have to know our own stories and how our own stories tie to that history. Yeah. And we don't know that, Jess. We don't. We really don't. We can't just study your history. We can't just go to DC and study the history of the African-American Museum. Like, where's the museum for whiteness? And I don't, don't take that out of context. I don't mean that there needs to be one with the same intent. I think though we do need to become a student of how whiteness works if you're white, because you know how it works. 
<laughs> I think it just needs to be examined. Yeah. And like you said, it's much easier to deflect and use a time like this to bring down the lens or the wall on one side of that equation. Okay, I understand better. I see I see better. The plight of the black community. Right. <laughs> I'll say right. it. Y'all got a plight too, like the white yeah. community. Yes. yes, we do. Has a plight. So thank you for seeing it fully because a man who I'm in many ways is the chosen one, right? To sort of lift people's heads up in a pandemic when everybody was quiet and sitting at home and this video comes through, the intensity around that moment, that's great. And the other side of that equation is equally important. And we need to start to shift there and start to do that work that you just laid out and not involve anybody but yourself and yes. those in your space yes. that look like you to have these questions asked. If we believe that race is a social construct, that applies to us too. That's right. And I think it's really important to name the how nuanced this work is going to be. Like it's not as simple as go find your closest black friend or black coworker, right? Or black neighbor if you're white and just sit down and start talking. Like we talked about trauma earlier, like white people got to realize that we've got to be sensitive to the trauma of black people in this and be very careful how we involve them in this journey of ours. Be very careful. Because honestly, Jess, what I don't need you for is to know my own social mobility story. Yeah. Let me unpack social mobility, how I got to what I got. Yeah. I'll watch a documentary and, and learn about how black people were denied justice for 400 years, right? But like, will I actually do the work to study my own legacy of how I got here to this point and the different benefits? Like I know the benefits that were denied to you in previous generations, but I, do I know the benefits that were unjustly given to the generations before me. Yeah. Case in point, like, let's make this real for me. Like, my grandfather benefited directly from the GI Bill. Would not apply to you and your family. Yeah. Or was not built for you. Like, overwhelmingly, most African-Americans did not qualify for that, yep. right? It was lots, lots of reasons why we wouldn't. A lot of reasons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And what does that lead to? My grandfather going to UNC Chapel Hill, gets him into college, gets him a secondary education. And then not only does that help build wealth because a college degree for a white person means a whole heck of a lot, but even the legacy status of being able to then for me to get into UNC decades later, right? Yeah. If generational injustice, it's just this idea of inequity gets passed down, but also so does privilege. Mm -hmm. So do benefits. And we have to own that. And that's back to your point earlier. You talked about this difference between like how you're absorbing this and the difference between how white people absorb it. I think I think we have to name the fact that like white people as a culture, we don't study it. And we also don't know how communal it is or how, how non-communal it is, I should say. When I see, I don't tie myself to, I, we're so individual in our perspective that I don't feel any sense of corporate responsibility at all. Mm -hmm. So that if something that another white person did, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't affect me at all. That, does, that doesn't make me complicit, right? Something my, even my father, or my grandfather did like, there is no level of corporate responsibility whatsoever. And that's problematic because we just, it just doesn't work that cleanly. And that's so different than, and I think it causes us to even view the issues of like George Floyd and all these issues we see playing on the surface right now. Like white people don't know they're doing this when they, they bring an individual lens and they want to look at the individual case by case because they don't see any systemic trends. We're not conditioned yeah. to see it. So we want to just look at the facts, right? Yeah. 
How many black people saying that, Jess? Not many. <laughs> it's only white people that say, hey, let's look at the facts before we reach to... But even then, we don't realize we've been conditioned to look at the facts because we are taking an individual lens and the systems that we haven't named have benefited us so much that we can give the benefit of the doubt in that situation. Yeah, yeah. We can't solve it. Our listeners can't tell we're on a Zoom. But Rob is just like, got his hand on his head, like, what in the world? (laughs) It's a lot. There's a lot to unpack. It's so much. But I think... And I'm just glad that we, like, that I, you know, we can talk about it and it's not like foreign. I feel like it's way more, it's a different, we're at a different place than we were when we, when we started this podcast where it was like we were trying to explain vocabulary and words and, mm. you know, we were reading and we were, you know, it was different now. It's like, I feel like we're entering this at a, like there's a 101, now there's like the 201. I mm. feel like we're at 201 level at this con- in this conversation. A little bit more challenging and it's even more exasperating. It feels hard and hopeless at times. And having this conversation when we start talking about systems, when we talk about hundreds of years and we talk about individualistic mentality versus the collective web of injustice, right? All that mm. stuff. It's like, how do, you, how do you start to like piece that apart? And I, I believe that, well, I mean, I, I really do think I've shared this before that we have to take a spiritual accounting, a personal Mm. and spiritual accounting of this moment. And so that's why I said, I looked at me and said, Hey, me, I can do, I could sit on seven boards. I could volunteer every Saturday and make myself feel good about whatever, or I could start a nonprofit, but I wouldn't be the best one to do it right? I did an asset map of like, what are my gifts and talents? That's Mm -hmm. a personal and spiritual accounting for me um, in this moment as to how I'm going to be a part of this resistance against white supremacy. When we name it, because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone needs to say that. And white supremacy, if you're white, you should say that. Because like, what is your role in resisting white supremacy? Because we don't believe it exists on the black side and we can't, right? All of that real is real stuff. That power stuff needs to come down. So what is it? And I mean, I don't know. We have a million resources for you, but I mean, do some work. That's right. Like, what is that for you? It's okay. And this isn't me getting upset. I'm not. I'm just like, come on, y'all. We, this podcast can't solve the world. That's right. I took my time to do my own asset, my own assessment. And it took me in a place that I wasn't mostly comfortable with because I'm really good at these other things, right? Of like using and spending my time bebopping around and helping and serving. But the truth is my highest and best use is a space that is a little bit unfamiliar, but my gifts live there. And so I have to live into that. I am 44. So I only have, you know, so much time on this planet, God willing. I need to stop playing with this and Mm. do my part. And that's going to be my part, right? So. I think for me, I love what you're talking about of what are the gifts that God has given me and how I'm going to steward them well in this moment and for the rest of my life on this trajectory towards justice and thriving for myself, for my family, for all people that my life touches or, or even to set up. And again, you talked about before to connect the dots between this individual and communal perspective. I need to go and be successful because guess what? My community is, they're going to see that and be inspired by that because there is this communal sense, right? That we don't feel in the white community because we don't even say the words white community. My success isn't connected to anybody else's, right? And therefore, any negatives aren't either. Any past sins aren't connected. And that's just not fundamentally true. 
I heard somebody say, if your great grandfather won the lottery, your life would be fundamentally different because of that, right? Same to be true is if you experience injustice that far back. So like both of those things are true at the same time. Yeah. And we got to have those conversations. We can't just acknowledge, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. Black people got it a little harder because of, but not go to, but look at what we unjustly have benefited from. And now what am I going to do with that? And that's, that's to me, just this, the journey that I'm on as a white person is I got to lean more deeply into to history because I don't know it because I haven't been taught it, but I got to teach myself and I got to find people that can teach me. I got to learn how my story intersects with that history and know my social mobility story. And then once I've done that audit or assessment, to use your term, I got to look for ways to transfer resources and give up power. Like I got a name that I have that and I benefit from unjust system. And then I got, I can't just, I can't stop with the diagnosis, right? You can't stop with the the accurate diagnosis. You actually have to take aggressive action to say, let's actually start to redistribute those resources and look to find ways to give up power so that we can really see justice in our communities. Yeah. And that's all I got. Uh, And I wonder if like we had this long list of resources, Jeff, I wonder if we just need to bury those because guess what? You got to do the work. I don't know if we should even do any of this work for our listeners, like other than, because <laughs> it's all, it's all out there. Things in there. I mean, yeah, Google it. That's right. Or come, come find us, like have a conversation, do, do something. There's more resources about this now than there were three weeks ago. There you literally can't log into, can't log you in. can't, <laughs> you can't even log into Netflix to watch a show right. that has nothing to do without the Black Lives Black Matter Lives section Matter series, right? right in the, your face. You have to click to say, go to home. You have to willingly say, I'm going to do, be not about this. So like, I don't know how helpful me and you can list books, documentaries, podcasts till we turn blue in the face, but guess what? We can't want it for our listeners. And if you're listening to this, honestly, my, my hunch is you don't really need a list from us because you already have a list and you're tuning in because you want, you want to keep growing. And, and I think that we're on that journey with you. We appreciate you being on this ride, but when it comes to looking ahead, I think we should just say that we're to be continued. We're going to keep this conversation going. It's going to permeate so much of future yeah. for the Just Podcast. We're not done. This is not, okay, we just checked a box. Now let's move on to the new topic. Like, no, like this conversation and the roots of this injustice permeate almost every other conversation that we, that we will have. Yeah. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Until next time. Yeah. Thanks, friend. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening to Just, a part of the Capital Broadcasting Podcast Network in partnership with ReCity and Coastal Credit Union. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 